Welcome to this episode of the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. The mission of the Greenville Oaks Church of Christ is to inspire people to follow Jesus because we are convinced that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. Find out more about Greenville Oaks or connect with us online at greenvilleoaks.org. As always, we ask that you subscribe to, rate, and review our podcast. It makes it easier for others to find us. And now, on to this week's message with Lead Minister Colin Packer. series called Ahead of Their Time. It's a series where I'm trying to help us look at God and the Bible in a fresh way. Because in our culture, many people assume that the Bible is a primitive and barbaric story. Why would you want to read the Bible in 2019, some might ask. And on the one hand, that critique is, is fair. The Bible is an ancient text. It was written thousands of years ago. But I hope you're seeing in this series how this ancient library of books still speaks. In fact, more than merely suggesting the Bible is relevant in 2019, I'm actually making the case that the Bible is still ahead of its time. We're still trying to catch up to the staggering ideas presented in this book. But sometimes you have to look more closely to see just how radical this book is. Over the last three weeks, we've talked about several topics that, uh, especially in the book of Genesis, it talks about being ahead of its time. A creation story that was ahead of its time in relation to the other stories told around it. A tribe that was ahead of its time with a calling to Abram. And a covenant that was ahead of its time we talked about last week. And in each of these sermons, I've tried to show that, God, that the God described in the Bible was better and more advanced than any of the other gods people worshipped at that time. In other words, Yahweh is ahead of his time. The God of Israel creates out of joy and creativity rather than violence and carnage. The people of Israel exist to bless all nations rather than just preserving their own. And the God of Israel commits himself to Israel based on his faithfulness rather than ours. Today we're moving and flipping in the Bible from Genesis in those first few stories to the book of Exodus. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning or uh, maybe an app on your phone, feel free to turn there with me to the book of Exodus. We'll read there in just a moment. But let us begin with prayer this morning. Oh God, you are our God. And earnestly we seek you. We long for you as thirsty people of the desert long for water. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. Your people through the generations have walked with you, God. At times they've wondered where you were in the midst of seeming silence. And at other times they could not deny your presence and ask that maybe a messenger could go speak to you because it was just too much. So this morning, God, we're not quite sure what to ask because we want a word from you, but we're also frightened by the prospects of what that word might mean for us. And so this morning, God, I pray you would pour through me the gift of preaching so that Christ would be formed in our hearts. And it's the name of Jesus that we pray. And everyone said, Amen. 
The book of Exodus begins with the absence of God. God is nowhere to be found, which begs the question, what happened between the first book we read and the book of Exodus? Seems like there's constant communication in the book of Genesis between God and messengers and individuals and the people as a whole, not here so much. So how did they end up in this place as slaves in Egypt? What was that process? And in that sense, Genesis is the prologue to this book of Exodus. Abraham, the one who was called by God to start this new tribe, has a son named Isaac. And Isaac has a son named Jacob. And Jacob has many sons, and one of those is Joseph. And at the end of Genesis, Joseph is second in command over the entire uh, empire, country of Egypt. But as the book of Exodus begins, we discover that a few years have passed since then. Joseph and his brothers are deceased, and the Israelites have followed the command of God to be fruitful and multiply. And that's a problem. It's not a problem for Israel, but a new king has come into power who didn't know the story of Joseph and the story of Israel who came to power in Egypt. And and why is that a problem? Well, because he notices how fruitful these people have become, and he sees them as a threat. But as any evil villain does, he's got an idea. He decides that he will make these Israelites his slaves. He'll oppress them with forced labor to build his storehouses. Now, why does one want to build storehouses? Well, a storehouse is where you take the grain and other food that you or perhaps others have harvested and you stockpile it in anticipation of a drought or a famine. And Pharaoh is stockpiling the bounty from other people's labor. If there's a famine, people will turn to the person who's stockpiling food and come to him and pay him for the food that he acquired and stored that was actually created and developed by others. See, Egypt is a place of systemic injustice and inequality. There's a widening gap between the haves and the have-nots. These slaves are worked ruthlessly by their slave masters. They're building these structures with bricks and mortar, which if you've heard the stories over the last few weeks should remind you of another story we've talked about. In Genesis chapter 11, it's a story about the Tower of Babel, a story about an empire that wants to make a name for itself and builds its empire with bricks and mortar. The Tower of Babel is a story about a growing empire that wants to make a name for itself and God puts a stop to their building. But things have gotten worse in Egypt. This is not a joint building venture in this story. In Egypt, the haves force the have-nots to do the work to build up the wealth of the haves. The Egyptians, as the text says, used the Israelites. Now, you use an object, correct? You use an animal, a tool, a product. When you hate your job, you say, I just feel like a number. I feel like I'm being used. It's dehumanizing. We all know we're not supposed to use people. The storyteller, though, wants us to know that these slaves are part of an entrenched system of inequality where they're being used to build storehouses so that the one who owns them can stockpile his wealth and bounty all the more. In other words, Egypt is ordered in a particular way. In Egypt, some are on top and some are on the bottom. In Egypt, some are free and others are slaves. 
in Egypt, some are accumulating more and some are working to accumulate more for those others. It's a degrading, dehumanizing place of systemic injustice. In Egypt, the world is being ordered a particular way and there appears to be nothing that the Israelites can do to change this picture. It's just how it is. Tomorrow will be a repeat of today, which is the definition of despair, isn't it? There's nothing better that can be done. The story won't be changed. You're helpless to change anything. And this story at the beginning of the book of Exodus begs a few questions from us. How does the world get ordered? And who decides how it gets ordered? Who gets a say in how things proceed? What does this ordering say about what it means to be human? Can you move or can you change or advance? Can you make your life better in Egypt? Or are things simply just the way things are? No, we're not in Genesis anymore as we turn the page. In Genesis, God creates humans in his image. In Exodus, Pharaoh uses humans like he owns them. In Genesis, God launches a tribe that will bless all the peoples on the earth. In Exodus, Pharaoh leads a tribe for the good of the Egyptians. In Genesis, God is in constant relationship with his creation. In Exodus, God is absent and distant. In Egypt, there are babies who are being born into the world who will only know slavery all of their lives. This is not how God designed the world to be. See, Egypt is what happens when sin builds up ahead of steam. Egypt is what happens when sin becomes structured and embedded in a society. Egypt shows us how easily human nature bends toward using power to preserve privilege at the expense of the weak. And if you know history, you know that ancient Egypt isn't the only empire where inequality, brutal slavery, and injustice has occurred. Every empire has its winners and its losers. Every empire runs over people to get to the top. Every empire gains its wealth by extracting it from people who are on the bottom. And yet, the history books tend to tell the story of that rise of empire a little bit differently than the book of Exodus. And why is that? It's because history is written from the viewpoint of the winners. And why is history written from the viewpoint of the winners? It's because the losers are dead. And when the losers are dead, there's no one around to correct the story. But the Bible isn't your average history book. This isn't a story that's written by the winners. This is a story that's written by the losers. Now, sure, there are a few moments in the story where they win. There are a few moments where they're in power. They have a king on the throne. They seem to be in command of their destiny. But here's the uniqueness of the Bible. The majority of the books that the Bible in the Bible were written by people who were living as exiles and strangers under the authority of a foreign ruling power. The Bible is written while the people of God are living under the command of those in Egypt, under the command of those in Assyria, under the command of those in Babylon, and under the command of those in Rome. As an aside, you think it might be possible to miss out on parts of this story as a citizen of the wealthiest and most powerful nation in the history of the world? You better believe it is. It's much easier for us to connect with, with Egypt and Assyria and Babylon and Rome than it is to connect with this band of Hebrew slaves. We always have to read this story with an acknowledgement of some kind of distance. 
We should read this story as if we have something to learn, something to hear that we're not aware of even in our own day. Because this book was written by a bunch of underdogs and they know some things that we don't. And one of the things we learned from Exodus is that if you listen closely, there's always a cry. There's always a groan, a plea that rises up from those who are being dominated. And in the book of Exodus, that cry comes at the end of Exodus chapter 2. So turn with me, if you would, to Exodus 2, beginning in verse 23. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of their slavery went up to God. God heard their groaning and he remembered his covenant with Abram and with Isaac and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. Now now during this series, I'm trying to wake us up to the verses that are revolutionary, but don't often maybe seem like it. We can read over them. And these are those verses in the book of Exodus. This is revolutionary stuff that we just read over as we see chapter 3 in its heading. The ancient Near Eastern gods did not respond like Yahweh responds, the God of Israel. As he responds in the book of Exodus, is very different because the ancient Near Eastern gods create out of violence. They are angry with humans. They don't involve themselves in the concerns of humans. But this God, according to the book of Exodus, hears the cry. And that is a brand new idea in human history. That there would be some kind of divine being out there who actually hears the cry. And, and not only does this God hear their cry, this God remembers a covenant, which we talked about last week, right? God made a covenant that he would be with his people, that he would be faithful even when they are not. And God remembers that covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So when God hears the cry of the Israelites, it triggers a memory of the promise he had made with them. It's almost as if the cry is like the rainbow in the sky after the flood, right? When I see this rainbow, I'll remember the covenant that I won't destroy the earth. The same is true here. When God hears the cry, he remembers the covenant. So when God hears the cry of the Israelites... We see a God who sees. We see a God who who hears. The Hebrew word here used uh, for cry is sa'ak. And we find this word actually all throughout the the Hebrew scriptures. Sa'ak is an expression of pain. It's the sound we utter when we get wounded. It's the sound you make when you hit your finger with the hammer, right? Sa'ak is the expression, this kind of groan that comes out automatically. It's a cry for relief. It's a cry for someone to hear. And this God doesn't just hear the cry. This God remembers his covenant. And this is a God who's moved to action. The exodus is how God responds to the cries that he hears. In the verse after Genesis, or in Exodus 2, verse 25, God does something about this. He responds immediately once he hears the cry and he remembers the covenant. You remember what he does? He doesn't step into the story and fix it on his own. No, instead, God taps a man on the shoulder. He he finds this man by this burning bush. And he taps Moses on the shoulder and he calls him to action. No, God, when he hears the cry, doesn't step in and fix everything. He often finds people of faith who are part of his tribe who he wants to hear the cry as well. And I'm going to be coming back to this in a moment. But God chooses to act through us as humans. 
Exodus is about a people, a tribe, a nation who is being saved and rescued from slavery. It's about liberation from occupation. It's about the insurgent power of redemption from empire. If Genesis is a story about sacred creation and reconciliation, Exodus is a story about liberation, which it can also be called in this story salvation. Here again, just as in Genesis, God does not abandon humanity in its tragic story of injustice and oppression. Instead, God gets involved, siding with the oppressed, the vulnerable, the downtrodden, working as their ally for their liberation. I want you to hear this clearly this morning as we're talking about this book. God does not remain neutral in this story. God takes the side of the underdog. God takes the side of the oppressed. God steps beside those who are being used to accumulate wealth for those in power. And he moves powerfully on their behalf. The gods in Egypt apparently were fine with Egypt's ordering of the world. But this God is not okay with Pharaoh ordering and arranging the world the way it is. In Egypt, the gods are fine with slavery apparently. But this God is is the God of the oppressed, the God of the underdog. This God subverts the dominant power structures because this God hears the cry. This God holds powerful empires who gain their power unjustly accountable. This God is a God of liberation. So if we serve a God who hears the cry, who remembers his covenant, and who is moved to liberate those who groan under their oppression, then that begs a question of us here as well. And that question is, do we hear the cry? Or have we somehow lost the ability to hear the cry? Have we become more like Pharaoh in Egypt? Are we benefiting from systemic injustice and inequality? In the midst of an economic climate where there's a widening gap between the haves and the have-nots, which side do we stand on? Do we hear the cry? Because if you can't hear the cry, it's possible that you're building an empire of indifference. See, the Hebrew word sa'ak, which means cry, isn't just an expression of pain. It isn't just something to be heard. Sa'ak is also a question. A question that arises out of the pain of a wound. And so Sa'ak cries out, where is justice? Sa'ak cries out, did did anyone see that? Sa'ak cries out, will anyone come to my rescue? Sa'ak, the cry, says and asks the question, did anyone else hear that or am I alone here? And it's in in Genesis chapter 4, a story that we talked about a couple of weeks ago. That the first set of siblings come into conflict. Turn there if you would with me to keep your finger there in Exodus if you'd like. But Genesis chapter 4. Again, Cain and Abel are the first brothers. They're they're the kids of of Adam and Eve. And I want you to listen close to the way this story unfolds in Genesis 4 verses 9 and 10. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now, I'll give you one guess what the Hebrew word is in Genesis 4, 9, and 10 for that word, cry. It's the word sa'ak. The NIV translates it, listen, Cain. Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. God 
has been hearing the cry from the very beginning of Genesis. Do you hear the cry? Because I'll be honest, there was a good portion of my life where I was indifferent to the cry. I was indifferent to these cries. Just over a year ago, the blood of a brother in Christ named Botham Jean cried out to me from the ground. Botham Jean actually attended this church a few times when he was living with one of our couples, Malcolm and Dolores Johnson. I never met Botham on the Sundays that he was here. He was an alumnus of Harding University and worked at PricewaterhouseCoopers here in Dallas. He led worship at the Dallas West Church of Christ. And one night he was killed in his own home by an intruder. I attended Botham's funeral. And in that room, I heard the cries of brothers and sisters that I didn't know that day, but I sure heard their cry. As I sat at that funeral and I looked over at the Church of Christ preacher's section, I realized something that will stick with me forever. I didn't know a single person in that Church of Christ preacher's section. And the reason I didn't know anyone in that Church of Christ preacher's section was because these were black Church of Christ preachers which essentially is another movement from white churches of Christ and other movements within the restoration movement. That's how divided we've been. So the question that I was left with at the end of that day, along with many other questions in the midst of hearing that cry, was how could my family live in Dallas and attend churches of Christ for the past four generations? How could I be the son of a patriarch elder at the Preston Road Church of Christ, uh, my great-grandfather? How can my grandfather be an elder in a church of Christ here in Dallas? How can my father be a preacher and now an elder in a church of Christ in Dallas? And how can I be a preacher now and not know the names of any preachers who are sitting in that section? And that day I vowed I would get to know those preachers. Over the past year, I'm grateful to say I have gotten to know many of those preachers. I've shared meals with them. We've been in each other's homes. Paul Sammy, Jonathan, and Rodney, and Lamont, and Brian, and Ken have become close, dear friends. And a year ago, I couldn't have told you their names. And as I've listened to their experiences in Dallas, I realize that they live a different experience than I do. Many of those churches are in the southern sector of Dallas. And the stats clearly show that North and South Dallas have different economic and educational opportunities. But statistics don't speak like stories shared across the table from one another. Botham's blood cries out from the ground and it asks us several questions. Where's justice? Does anyone notice that he's gone? Or maybe more importantly to me in the midst of this last year, does anyone care about the divide that's found in our churches? God is still the God of liberation. Do we hear the cry? It strikes me that when God wants to bring liberation, he doesn't move in and fix it all on his own. Directly after chapter 2, when he hears the cry and he remembers his covenant, he taps a guy named Moses on the shoulder. 
And when leaders begin to hear the cries that they've been ignoring, they lead a people to do something about that kind of suffering, about the division, about the ignorance to one another. The God we serve is a God who hears the cry. The God we serve is a God who remembers his covenant. And the God we serve is a God who liberates his people, all of his people, whenever they cry out. The basic shape of the Exodus story is clear. God sides with the oppressed, the vulnerable, the downtrodden, the unheard, and God works as their ally for their liberation. And that means we continue to work as his people in 2019 in so many different ways. And so many of us have different callings in this. So many of us have our ears closed to hear the cry in different aspects of our world, in different aspects of our city. I think God gives us a sensitivity to hear that cry in different ways. We hear the cry of Slaves and trafficked children who need liberators. Today, in our world, there are between 20 and 40 million people who are still enslaved in our world. We hear their cry, and we must act. We hear the cry of women in our society who cry, Me too. One in three women have experienced sexual violence involving physical contact in their lives. We hear their cry, and we must act. We hear the cry of children growing up in poverty without hope that things will ever be different. We hear their cry and we must act. We hear the cry of prisoners who are wrongfully accused and unfairly sentenced because of a system of justice in our country that treats you better if you're rich and guilty than if you're poor and innocent. We must hear their cry and we must act. I must admit, at times, it's easier to shut our eyes, our ears to the cries. Ignorance is bliss. But we serve a God who hears the cry, who remembers his covenant, and who brings liberation to those who are silenced, enslaved, abused, and mistreated. Exodus is telling us about a God who brings a liberation unheard of in that time. None of the other gods would have responded this way. The other gods endorse those who are on top. This God hears the cry of those who go unheard. The ancient Near Eastern gods didn't hear those cries. They, they responded in different ways. But our God, Yahweh, responds completely differently. Our God takes the side of the underdog and the powerless. Our God liberates those who are on bondage. And that means that if we're on the side of this God, We've got to learn to hear the cry. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about tribe. And I think it's really interesting, this story in relation to the, the, the story that we read a couple of weeks ago. Because if you'll remember, in 1 Samuel 8, <clears throat> God calls this <clears throat> tribe of people together in, in Genesis chapter 12. He says, I want to bless you so you can bless all the peoples on earth. You remember this, right? But then it comes a little bit later to 1 Samuel chapter 8, and, God's, and they want a king who's going to lead them, right? A king like all the other nations. Do you remember what's said? Look, you can choose a king, but here's what's going to happen, all these things. And do you remember the warning God gave them at that point? God said, if you choose this route, the route of looking like all these other nations, when you cry out to me, I will not hear your cry. And they say, we're just fine with that, God. But when it comes to hearing the cry in Exodus, it's so clear that God says, I hear this cry. There's a lot going on in our city right now, in our country, and in our world. 
And we as the church, it's important that we stand up. It's important that we hear. It's important that we have empathy and that we extend our hearing beyond the echo chambers that are so easy to live within. And over the last year, that's been the prayer that I've given to God is, God, I just want to extend my hearing in the city differently. I want to get to know people who see the city differently than what I've grown up with. And I've heard things that I didn't know before. And that's my challenge to you in the days ahead, is instead of just listening to the echo chambers that you find it so easy to fall into, it's so natural to do that, I want to challenge you to think about who are those sections of people like I had a year ago that I said, I don't know a single one in that section. I want to challenge you to make a phone call, set up a lunch, and and to listen. And I believe if we do that, we have an opportunity for unity that isn't possible when we stay in the same circles that we always seem to. Do you hear the cry, church? It's time that we move toward it and discover how to liberate those who are crying today. Let us pray as we close. Father in heaven, you see so many things that we cannot see. And you hear so many things that we are too distant to hear. And yet we live in a world that is more connected than ever, a world where we know things much more quickly than we used to. And God, in the midst of this world that we find ourselves in today, I don't believe it's changed since Exodus, who you are and what you call your people to do, and and that is to, to listen closely. And what we train our ear to will shape the way we respond in the world. So God, I pray if taken the chance in 1 Samuel 8 to be like all the other tribes, with the risk of you not hearing us when we cry out to you, that's not the direction we want to choose. That we want to be like you and we want to be like your son who entered into the world and had tears in his eyes on a regular basis. Who wept over Jerusalem. Who saw the suffering of lepers. Blind people. People who were on the outsides and on the margins. And it was that hearing of that cry and stepping up like Moses did to respond to that cry that led him outside the city camp bearing the disgrace he bore outside of the walls of Jerusalem at Golgotha. And so God, for us as your church, we live as a marginalized, exiled people. We live as a people who don't find our natural place at the center of power, at the center of influence. We're learning, like those in Scripture, to realize that really we're more natural when we're nimble and we're ready to move at the margins, outside of those centers of power. And that's a hard lesson because it's become real comfortable for us to be always in the conversation. To see our steeples rise above other buildings. And yet, when I look around downtowns today, those steeples are dwarfed by buildings of commerce. By buildings around it that really are an identification of what's changed in our world. And it feels threatening at times, God. But God, we find in this story in Exodus a story of who you are, a story of who you continue to be. And my prayer is that each one of us would learn to train our ears like your ears are trained. We'd learn to shape our vision in the way that you shaped Saul's on the road to Damascus. In the way you've shaped people for generations. God, we want to be your hands and we want to be your feet. And we want ears like your ears. And eyes like your eyes. We want to listen for the call and the tap on the shoulder that you also give 
throughout the generations because you don't step in to fix all this on your own. You expect for your church to step up with you. That give us wisdom, give us knowledge, and give us insight. Help us to see what we don't yet see and to hear what we don't yet hear and help us to have courage to respond when the moment calls for. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the Greenville Oaks Message Broadcast. We hope this message helps you to inspire people to follow Jesus because you're convinced, like we are, that following Jesus is the best way of life possible. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Discover more about the Greenville Oaks Church online at greenvilleoaks.org.